You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com False flag terror attacks Happening all over the globe You got something to say about that? Tell it to the free speech zones I'm respectfully opposed to a war That has the potential to destroy the world Maybe I'm crazy, but I doubt that I'm alone. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 18th day of April, 2010. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check out the websites, CorbettReport.com, ClimateGate.tv, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ReportageBook.com, as well as those websites that help to support, broadcast, and syndicate this podcast, including RadioForAll.net, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, Archive.org, OneSkyRadio.com, ZeroPointRadio.com, and TragedyAndHope.com. For those keeping track at home, this is the 127th episode of The Corbett Report, as I released episode 126 yesterday, that being the audio of Jason Burmis's new film, Invisible Empire. As I explained in episode 126, I think it's a very important documentary and extremely well-documented, so I certainly hope people will check out episode 126, which of course can be downloaded from CorbettReport.com, or if you subscribe to the RSS feed, it should be in your RSS catcher. As a result, this is episode 127, and although I had advertised at the end of last week's episode that this week's episode would be Kalia and the Stellar Wind, that has been moved back to next Sunday, as developing events are just too important not to cover right away. In fact, I think this week's episode is extremely important, and it's one that I really hope people will listen to very carefully. So once again, next week, April 25th, will be Kalia and the Stellar Wind. This week, of course, is You Are Being Prepped. Finally, I'd just like to thank everyone who continues to give their generous support to the website through the donate button on the homepage. We're now down to the final few DVDs from the 2020 Hindsight DVD donation drive. So once again, if you have not yet done so, but do appreciate the information provided in this podcast, please consider donating to The Corbett Report. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to your Sunday update for this 18th day of April 2010. And now for the real news. Making headlines this week, the World Health Organization appointed a group of so-called experts to investigate its own conduct in declaring an international pandemic emergency in the face of a remarkably mild H1N1 flu last year. On Monday, WHO Director General Margaret Chan appeared to call for an independent committee to review the WHO's own actions. We want a frank, critical, transparent, credible, and independent review of our performance, she said at the commencement of a three-day panel reviewing the affair. Hopes for such an independent review were quickly dashed when it was revealed that the proceedings would take place behind closed doors, that the supposedly independent group was in fact composed of the very people who had called for a declaration of pandemic in the first place, and that the panel was not interested in any wrongdoing on the part of the WHO or its advisors. It was quickly discovered that one of the key members on the review panel, John McKenzie, had in fact been the head of the WHO Emergency Committee that had advised the WHO to declare a pandemic in the first place. Earlier this year, he told the German paper Der Spiegel, I think we did everything right when dealing with the response. McKenzie also has ties to vaccine manufacturers in his work with Australia's Microbiology Society and as the organizer for big pharma-sponsored conferences. No attempt was made to explain how such an individual could gain a spot on a supposedly independent review panel. We are not here either to defend or to prosecute the WHO, panel chairman Harvey Feinberg told the press regarding the interview. 
We're here to find out as best as we can, in as truthful way we can, what are the lessons that can be learnt from the scandal. WHO's critics note that a truly independent review would have considered why the WHO's criteria for declaring a pandemic emergency, which had long insisted that a disease must cause enormous numbers of deaths and illness, was changed during the course of the H1N1 situation to remove any mention of deaths. The answer, critics allege, comes in the billions of dollars of contracts that were automatically activated with the pandemic declaration. Now countries around the world find that they have spent billions of dollars on unused and unwanted vaccines that they are literally giving away. Remarkably, the WHO cover-up panel concluded that the internet actually made the swine flu pandemic worse by spreading information on the dangers of the untested experimental vaccines that were developed for the H1N1 flu. The WHO influenza chief, Keiji Fukuda, said that the internet had added to the problem by fueling anti-vaccine messaging, which was very active and made it very difficult for public health services in many countries to convince people of the safety of deadly toxic adjuvants like squalene. A Council of Europe committee investigating the role of Big Pharma in influencing the WHO swine flu pandemic decision for profit is still ongoing. In other news this week, a supposedly independent panel set up by the University of East Anglia to investigate the conduct of its own researchers in the ClimateGate affair has concluded that the researchers did nothing wrong. Critics of the latest finding note that the panel was headed by Lord Oxburgh, who, as president of the Carbon Capture and Storage Association and chairman of a wind energy firm and a member of the Green Fiscal Commission, has a direct financial stake in whether man-made CO2 is warming the earth. What's more, the committee issued a five-page report a mere three weeks after it was first announced, took no evidence, and cited just 11 references in their decision. This latest whitewash follows similar ones from other areas of academia. In February, Penn State investigated the conduct of its own researcher Michael Mann, the creator of the hockey stick graph that was largely responsible for the panic over man-made global warming. The panel concluded that he had committed no misconduct. In March, the UK Parliament's Science and Technology Committee released a report claiming that the scientific reputation of Professor Jones and CRU remains intact. The committee chairman, Phil Willis, later admitted that the report had been rushed for political purposes. A committee that the UN's IPCC is appointing to investigate its own procedures for issuing reports on climate change has not yet been concluded. Finally this week, the SEC is filing civil charges against Goldman Sachs Vice President Fabrice Touré for fraud related to the misleading of investors on collateralized debt obligations linked to mortgages. The charges stem from the fact that the investment was designed by Paulson & Co, who deliberately engineered the offerings to fail and then secretly bet against them. The fact that these are civil charges rather than criminal charges leave many wondering whether this is a limited hangout designed to make the American public believe that the SEC is doing its job in holding these feats firm to the fire when in fact they are receiving a slap on the wrist. Remarkably, someone in the corporate media seems to actually understand this story and its significance. What a classic illustration of how secrecy can breed fraud and deception. And so but I it's think worse than that, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if you, look, if you look at what they were doing, or what they stand accused of, manufacturing a deliberately exploding bond or car, on purpose, John Paulson in the room saying, hey guys, let's design a really fancy red Ferrari, a really high yield AAA bond, and let's sell it to the teacher's pension fund because they're underwater in their state, so they'll buy anything with a yield. Making that choice and then screwing up the car where John Paulson gets to pick which pieces of garbage to stick inside of it so that it explodes. And then going to AIG in your state and betting that this thing's going to blow up. Then bringing the entire country to its knees in order to facilitate the payout and watching the American taxpayer pay completely. A hundred cents on the dollar, all of AIG's bets that were made with Goldman Sachs on behalf of John Paulson and other clients, and we haven't seen a single criminal investigation, and it's, we're working two years on as we watch record profits come out of these banks. Is this simply, Richard, because the money that comes to D.C. from the banks is so much? I mean, I look at this, no, I'm just looking at the president. A million dollars to Barack Obama in 2008 from people identifying Goldman as their employer. That is more than any president, any politician in the history of the world. 344 
$4 million going and lobbying this year. These people have a scam where they sell cars that explode, bet they're going to explode, get paid off by the taxpayer, and then take the payoff and send it to politicians to make sure they are able to continue to do this. I believe it's why four out of five people aren't Republican and two out of three people aren't Democrat, because no one is dealing with this, Mr. Blumenthal. How bad does this have to get until we can address the reality of the scam that is being run against the American pensioner, homeowner, and average taxpayer by bankers and politicians? This, my friends, boils down to some very simple questions for every American and every politician. Are you and are we a country that is okay with deliberately designing faulty cars and then betting that they will crash? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with deliberately creating and selling faulty loans and then betting they will collapse in the process, leaving taxpayers, future generations, teachers, police, police and pensioners, not to mention homeowners, on the hook with the banksters who control our politicians with all the money. Are you okay with that? Now, stay tuned for episode 127 of The Corporate Report, You Are Being Prepped, where we discuss the signs that a false flag event is being prepared to be blamed on domestic terrorists, and we talk to Stuart Rhodes about the demonization of the Oath Keepers. Welcome, my friends, to episode 127 of The Corporate Report podcast, You Are Being Prepped. As long-time listeners to this podcast might remember, episode 84, released on April 19th of 2009, was devoted to April 19th and the very many events that are connected to that anniversary. And that episode was entitled, April is the Cruelest Month. And of course, one of the things which is connected to April 19th is the Oklahoma City bombing, which occurred on April 19th, 1995. Ostensibly, this is why Oklahoma City and the OKC bombing are being mentioned so frequently in American media right now, although certainly these are not the regular April 19th anniversary type stories that are being aired. They have a very specific political agenda. For example, we have one from CNN.com from the 16th of April 2010 under the headline, Experts, Angry Rhetoric Protected but can be disturbing, which is an article essentially about the Tea Party and the various tax day protest movements going on in the United States that just happens to slip in in the sidebar, of course, a note about a Second Amendment rally that happens to be being held on April 19th, the day of the Oklahoma City bombing anniversary, dot, dot, dot. And of course, we're supposed to connect those dots by assuming that anyone who is protesting the current administration is absolutely identical to Timothy McVeigh, who supposedly pulled off the OKC bombing single-handedly. Now, there are many very disturbing aspects to that article, but perhaps one of the most disturbing is the persistent use of the word experts in headlines on CNN these days. And if you go there today on April 18th, 2010, to that particular article, you'll see a related most popular link under the headline, Experts, No End to Volcano Ash in Sight. And this is a aspect of media reportage that Alan Watt has talked about many times at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, and he has talked about the way in which Brzezinski and other controllers of the eugenics-obsessed oligarchy have been writing for decades about how they want to engineer a society in which people will be literally unable to think for themselves and will require experts to tell them how to do anything, even so much as go outside and dress for the weather. And we are unfortunately getting closer and closer to that point, and that is being rubbed in our face with such ridiculous headlines as experts, angry rhetoric protected, but can be disturbing. Oh, thank you, hallowed experts, for sharing those gems of wisdom with us. But moving right along in terms of the OKC bombing media meme popping up once again at this time, we have an article from the Times Online from April 17th, 2010. Domestic terrorists as big a threat as Al-Qaeda, says FBI head Robert Mueller. And that article starts with the following 
sentence, quote, 15 years after the Oklahoma City bombing, the specter of domestic terrorism has returned to haunt the Obama administration, with a warning from the FBI that homegrown and lone wolf extremists now represent as serious a threat as Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. End quote. And now, sickeningly, Bill Clinton is reprising his role as the savior of America during the OKC aftermath by once again bringing up Oklahoma City and that terrible tragedy to score ridiculous political points. President Bill Clinton says the mood in this country is similar to the mood just before the Murrow bombing. He cites the Tea Party movement, economic uncertainty, and a rise in militias. Now he has a warning for those with an anti-government attitude. And Eyewitness News News5's Mark Opgrand is live with his concerns. Mark? Yeah, that's right, Paul. In fact, uh, President Clinton made the connection between the anti-government sentiments 15 years ago and what he sees and hears today. However, the attorney, former attorney for Timothy McVeigh says it's not quite the same attitude. In the run-up to the Oklahoma City bombing, a number of events around the country served to fuel anti-government sentiment. A recession in the Plains states, the standoff at Ruby Ridge, and the siege at Waco. Before the bombing occurred, there was a sort of fever in America. But while former President Clinton believes the mood of today is eerily similar to 15 years ago, Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh's attorney does not. I don't think it's similar at all. Stephen Jones says you cannot equate what happened in Oklahoma City, Waco and Ruby Ridge to the mood of today, simply because a person supports a view different than President Clinton's. Many of these people that are upset at the administration are no more militia than Eric Holder is a member of Al-Qaeda. But President Clinton says he hears the echoes of Oklahoma City, and groups like the Tea Party should tone down their rhetoric. I am not trying to muzzle anybody. Have at it. Go fight. Go do whatever you want. You don't have to be nice, and you can be harsh, but you've got to be very careful not to advocate violence or cross the line. Now add to the list that nauseating creature Rachel Maddow, who's making the rounds on talk TV these days, pimping a new MSNBC special about the McVeigh tapes. Well, we're delighted to have you on the program. Uh, although, it's very serious, uh, the, uh, the special that you're doing, the uh, uh, McVeigh tapes. Mm-hmm. Are these tapes, have people heard these before? This is in, in McVeigh's own words? What, what, this is McVeigh himself. Nobody's ever heard this before. There were two journalists who McVeigh handpicked to tell his story to after he was convicted while he was awaiting execution. He knew he was going to be killed. And he did 30, 40 hours of audio tapes with them in jailhouse interviews in which he confessed. He talked about his motivations. He talked about how he did it. And we boiled that audio essentially down to a two-hour documentary where you can hear Timothy McVeigh in a way that nobody's ever heard him because he never confessed or, or, or talked about the crime at length to prosecutors to anybody so this is the first time we've heard it. Is it, it when you listen to it is your first impression oh he's a he's a sociopath he's a psychopath and, and he's or is he still rationalizing what what do you see as his mindset in all this? I, I mean he seems like a sociopath definitely right. but he's he sees himself as not only having done exactly what he intended, but it having had the effect that he intended. He was really waging war on the U.S. government, but he also saw himself as not a lone wolf. He saw himself as coming from the patriot movement, coming from the sort of militia-associated gun rights patriot movement, and he was standing up for what happened at Waco, what happened at Ruby Ridge. And now, was he disappointed then that they distanced themselves from him? Was he expecting more of a hero's welcome? Was he expecting a different response than what he got? It's a good question because he wasn't really martyred to that movement in the way that he wanted to be. Well, I'm sure you get the point by this point, but just in case you don't, I will state it quite clearly. The Oklahoma City bombing is being raised at this point as part of a media-led prep so that any violence that happens, whether staged, provocateur, or even real, will be instantly laid on the doorstep of the militia movements, the patriot movement, and anyone else concerned with the Constitution of the United States of America, which just happens to be the majority of the citizens. But don't tell the corporate media that. Well, this certainly does not represent anything new, because in fact, this is exactly what was happening 
just months before the OKC bombing itself, when the public was being prepped at that time to lay the blame for any tragedy at the feet of the militia movement. That can perhaps best be seen in a clip from the Phil Donahue show in December 1994, just months before the OKC bombing, where Phil Donahue was going positively apoplectic to the point of not being even making any sense in his desperate attempt to paint the Michigan militia and the other militia movements as a bunch of insane crazies. But unfortunately for him, in retrospect, he's the only one who comes off looking insane in this clip. The United States of America, they believe that the United States government is prepared to usurp the Constitution and break down doors and confiscate guns. Am I lying to these people, Bob Fletcher and Jim Trockman? John Trockman. John, sorry, it says John here. You believe this? No, not quite like that. Not the U.S. government. Which government? The one world government? Yes, sir. You, you, the United Nations? Yes, sir. And you're in the woods now, and you're not, neither no. of you, you're not in the woods? No, no, no. Yeah, you're from Montana, the city of Noxon? Yes, sir, the little town of Noxon. 350 people? Maximum. Aha, and you living in the woods? No. No, you're not. Is anybody in Montana? Just their plain homes. You're sitting next to Ray Southwell, who does, from Michigan. You're li you, you, you gather in the woods, don't you? In Michigan? When we train? Yeah. That's correct. But you're not living there. I don't quite understand when you say you're living there. I live in northern Michigan, and uh, I have 20 acres that I live on, and there's a house there. Right. You're with Ken Adams and Doug Hall here, as well as uh, the ever-popular, highly regarded Jim Johnson. You you're doing? from Ohio, are you? That's correct. Columbus, to be exact. Yeah. You're in a militia, are you? The Ohio Unorganized Militia, the duly elected communications officer. Yeah. What's, what do you... Uh, incidentally, I thought this was an all-white Aryan nation, uh, don't tread on me uh, kind of group. Yeah, well, the Saving the Country doesn't have an affirmative action program. All are invited. And uh, you're here, among other things, to say that you share their concern about uh, the pending crisis that's coming to this country? Oh, absolutely. Uh, being... A minority in our community we've seen certain actions that these conspiratorial theorists have talked about actually happen in our communities yeah, tell us what they are I'm having a little trouble getting it from the civilians here <laughs> well the, uh, you look the, like you're from IBM compared to the rest of the group uh, yes, so. we can spot you <laughs> we, from we, the air Bob you better get yourself true. your fatigues here I'm you, get spotted from right. yes you are <laughs> you're serious about this please I want this audience to know oh show them the film this is from Michigan let me just while while we're showing that you can make your uh, the case the basic here. problem is rather simple and Americans have become concerned that here in the United States we're losing our constitutional rights. We are slowly being moved into what amounts to being a one world, and that's George Bush and Gorbachev's words, a one world, new world order. And what that amounts to uh, basically is socialism, one world socialism, and if you don't like it you're going to be moved off someplace where they can control you. And the, the problem is, uh, in terms of the militia across the United States, this is exactly what we're addressing. It has nothing to do with racism, as I guess uh, our, our compadre from Ohio would uh, testify. It has nothing to do with a handful of crazy people running through the woods and practicing to shoot unknown mysterious people. We already are witnessing, as we talk today, Puerto Rico, San Juan, Puerto Rico is under martial law, folks that everybody said would never happen. That's as we speak today. This has to do with uh, the sweep of uh, uh, public housing for drugs and uh, weapons that's in the Puerto excuse. Rico. That's the excuse that's being used. Now, the only point they don't make is that the tremendous tonnage of cocaine and narcotics coming into the United States is being done on C-130 military aircraft it's been that way since uh, all the way back in the 80s, and it was part of the Oliver North business with bringing in the drugs and yeah. the guns down to the Contras. Uh, uh, That's where the you're, drug problem uh, comes You're from. afraid of uh, the suspension of what you believe your, is your right to bear arms. That's really at the, fun, at the no, root of this. No, you're afraid not. the feds are coming along and no, take your guns not. away. My basic concern is what kind of a country am I going to leave my children? I am very, very concerned about that. And that's the reason that I'm in the militia. Now, anyone who lived through the OKC bombing tragedy will remember how the media 
instantly used that pre-programmed response towards the militia movement to lay the blame for that tragedy on the doorstep of the militia movement. And you might remember from episode 84 of the podcast, the interview that Sam Donaldson conducted with Mark Kornke after that tragedy, which, again, makes the controlled corporate media look ridiculous in its attempts to portray anyone who dissents with the government as domestic terrorists. But you have to give the mainstream media some credit. After all, years after the fact, when no one was really paying attention anymore, they did admit that, oh, by the way, McVeigh had nothing to do with the militia movement, and he was definitely not a member. The media had a field day reporting a tenuous tie between the Michigan militia and Oklahoma City bombers Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols. I know for a fact that uh, McVeigh was never in the militia. Not at all. He went to one meeting, he mentioned a few things that we found disturbing, and he was asked to leave. But when McVeigh's bomb went off in Oklahoma, it was the militia that was showing the But why let little pesky details like that get in the way of a good narrative, especially if that narrative allows you to pin the blame for a false flag terror event that you commit yourself on your political enemies? Now, that is something that, of course, we did outline in great detail in episode 38 of this podcast, so I would highly recommend people go back and listen to that so that they understand the truth behind the Oklahoma City bombing and just how far away from that truth the mainstream media constructed image of that bombing is. But for those who maybe don't have time to go back or can't do that right at the moment, I will play just a brief excerpt from the Burmese documentary Invisible Empire, which, of course, you also can get in episode 126 of this podcast. I'll play just a brief snippet of that documentary detailing some of the very troubling facts about the Oklahoma City bombing. Upon the fall of communism, a new threat had to be established in order to maintain their military-industrial complex and keep the people in fear of invisible enemies. More modern examples of this have been used not only to start conflicts abroad, but to instill fear in large populations in order to demonize groups and further erode civil liberties. The majority of people still believe that Timothy McVeigh was a right-wing extremist who bombed the Oklahoma City building with a rider truck because he was upset with the government. People close to the event told a very different story. A local congressman believes that convicted bomber Timothy McVeigh and his accused co-conspirator Terry Nichols are not the only ones involved. The Oklahoma State Representative Charles Key produced a videotape featuring witnesses who claimed to have seen Timothy McVeigh with another man the morning of the bombing. He was wearing a ball cap. Timothy McVeigh had his on backwards, which just like this. It was on his head. The other gentleman had his on like this. In fact, the FBI had actively pursued John Doe No. 2 in its initial investigation, then denied his existence altogether. There were also multiple reports that explosives were found inside the Murrah building. The Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found in the AP Murrah uh, building in downtown Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, you're still with us, aren't you? Yes, I am, and I, and I might tell you in addition to that that in fact, what we were told at the scene a few minutes ago was that, in fact, two different explosive devices were found in addition to the one that went off. The second explosive was found and diffused. The third explosive that was found, and they are working on right now as we speak, I understand, both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. Bomb squads were actually caught on video pulling into the building to retrieve these devices. They'll back that trailer down there. And the uh, bomb squad folks will go in, and they will use that, uh, that trailer. You see the, the bucket on the back there, sort of, this is how they would transport the explosive device away from this populated area to try to do something with it. I just took a look down the street uh, at the Mara building again. I see another bomb truck going, so apparently they're going to try to get out that third bomb that's been talked about. This was even confirmed by the governor at the time, Frank Keating. One device was... Uh, was uh, deactivated. Apparently there's another device, and obviously whatever did the damage to the Murrah building was a tremendous, uh, very sophisticated explosive device. Members of the ATF who would have normally been in the building were tipped off prior to the bombing. He saw what appeared to be a police bomb squad truck near the Murrah building two hours before the blast. 
It had a shield on the side of the door and it said bomb disposal or bomb squad blow it. And I really found that interesting. Another witness who spoke to ABC News on the condition of anonymity will tell the grand jury tomorrow he was told by an ATF official agents working in the building had been warned in advance not to come to work. He just came out and told me that the ATF wasn't in the building that day. They'd been tipped by their pagers not to come to work. Uh, which I was, flabber I was flabbergasted. McVeigh would even claim in a letter written to his sister, which was published by the New York Times, that he was actually recruited for black operations, which included smuggling drugs into the United States, as well as assassinations. One may brush this off as the ravings of a madman. However, McVeigh was filmed at the Camp Grafton Military Facility in North Dakota on August 3, 1993. McVeigh's official records state that he was discharged over a year prior from the Army Reserve in May of 1992. Perhaps even more interesting is that Camp Grafton was specializing in training troops in explosives and demolitions at the time. When all was said and done, the security tapes reported to have captured the entire thing on video were rounded up and classified. In 2009, they were finally released, and magically none of them caught the bombing. The excuse being they were all having their tapes changed at that exact moment. This event would be labeled domestic extremism, which was used to demonize critics of world government, militias, and create fear within the populace. And as we know, that is really only scratching the surface of the real truth behind the OKC bombing and the myriad ways in which the official story is a ridiculous tissue of lies. So once again, please check out episode 38 or even recent episodes of Sunday Update for more information about the OKC bombing. But I think it's extremely important to be drawing attention to this information right now, not only because it's always important to expose the false flag operations, even at any point after the fact, as long as we can let the public know the trick that is being played on them. And it is especially important at anniversaries, like the 15th anniversary, where we would expect an increase in media coverage, although the 15th anniversary is perhaps a strange occasion for this amount of media coverage, which is exactly why this is so important right now, because this media coverage of the OKC bombing being disguised as anniversary coverage is really part of the preparation for a false flag event exactly like the public was being prepared before the OKC bombing itself. I do not make this statement lightly and of course this does not necessarily mean that there will be a false flag terror event tomorrow or the day after or the day after that but I am saying that we are being prepared so that any violent act committed in the near future will be blamed on Tea Party protesters and or patriots and or militia. And we have seen this coming into view over the past several months. People might think of crazed, delusional 9-11 conspiracy theorist Patrick Bedell and his attempt to shoot up the Pentagon. Or we can take a look at the way that recent press coverage has treated the Hutari militia as if they were some kind of lean, mean fighting force that would have any chance of doing any damage to anyone whatsoever, when, of course, it turns out they were just a bunch of low-intelligence people being led around by an FBI informant. Surprise, surprise. But perhaps the clearest way to see what is going on here is to track the way the media has been covering a very interesting and a very important group known as the Oath Keepers. Let's turn to some media coverage of the Oath Keepers to get an idea of how they're being portrayed by the bankster-controlled, CIA-approved, Pentagon-supported media. This week we've been looking at militias. This organization is a little bit different, uh, but they're very much a part of what is known as this growing patriot movement in this country. In the first two parts of our series, we looked at the growth of private militias in this country. Now we turn to a group whose founder says he doesn't need a militia. That's because his organization is recruiting its members right out of the military and law enforcement. Just a couple of miles off the Las Vegas Strip, inside this casino ballroom, dozens of men and women are taking the oath, an oath they say is to the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 
not, they say, to the president. If we're going to watch while our country dies and think that there's nothing we can do about it, we're wrong. They call themselves the Oath Keepers, and last month they held their first national conference. Our forefathers flew this flag. The group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, a former Army paratrooper and staffer for Congressman Ron Paul, says his members recite a revised version of the oath that's used for enlistment in the armed services. But they exclude this phrase, I will obey the orders of the President of the United States. Our role is not to be obedient to whoever happens to be the leader. Our role is to defend the Constitution and the Republic. The Oath Keepers aren't in Vegas looking for gamblers. They're seeking out police officers, sheriff's deputies, military veterans, even active duty members of the armed forces. If you've taken an oath to protect this nation, the Oath Keepers want you. The group's website features pictures of veterans and active duty soldiers who say they've become Oath Keepers. The patch on this military uniform bears the group's name. Is the Oath Keepers a militia group? No. We don't need to be. We're the military and police. The Oath Keepers call on their members to disobey any orders, as they put it, to disarm the American people or to force citizens into detention camps. It's a pledge Rhodes recites in an anti-Obama DVD called The Fall of the Republic. Not obey orders to impose martial law. I will not obey. Mark Potok, who monitors extremist groups for the Southern Poverty Law Center, says the Oath Keepers are exploiting false rumors found on fringe websites. Many of the Oath Keepers are people who believe uh, that martial law is about to be imposed at any moment. It is right around the corner. So you're putting people together on a kind of a war footing, preparing them to be vigilant, a, to, be ready to, to be ready to challenge the imposition of foreign troops in this country, the creation of concentration. You know what I think you're up to is uh -huh. creating a mindset. Getting, I heard some people the other day talking about the battle. We have to keep the battle going. You want to have people in a militant environment where they think militantly with this sense of perhaps taking steps at some point against the government or, or th uh, taking, not taking orders or in some way rebelling so that you keep people in a mindset of right-wing thinking so you can achieve some immediate political goal. And I'm just wondering what you're getting the vote right-wing. What are you trying to get people to do in the next year or two or ten years before this Armageddon struggle occurs? We want them to keep their oath, Chris. Chris, the oath is to the no, Constitution. No, in the short term, what are you at? Look, you don't expect the concentration camps to come in the short run, do you? No, I don't. But it's a okay, long-term long concern. Do you expect the Hessians to be back in the short run? We are trying to prevent this country from suffering the abuse and the violation of rights that has happened in other countries in recent history. How so? How so? By keeping the oath. It's to the Constitution. It's not to any one man whether he gives you a thrill up your leg or not. It's to the yeah. Constitution. Yeah, so you believe that we have a possibility in this country of, of undermining the Constitution under Barack Obama. Hey, the, That's the, what you see coming. Or under a future President Giuliani or anybody else. The abuse of the Constitution didn't begin with Obama, and it hasn't stopped, unfortunately, either. Bush was violating the Constitution also. How many hours a day do you worry about the Constitution uh, being undermined by Barack Obama? Undermined. In other words, your rights being taken away, concentration camps being formed, foreign troops being landed, the black helicopters stopping at a military base near you. How many hours a day do you think about this probability or even plausibility, sir? Well, I'm a constitutional lawyer, but thinking about this. No, for but many how many years. hours a day do you worry about this actually happening? Seriously. Do you go to bed at night when you put your head on the pillow at night? Are you afraid that at some point in your lifetime, the black helicopters from the U.N. will arrive in the United States and deny American sovereignty? Do you think that's probable or possible? I think it's or possible. possible. I think what we're concerned about, look, look, at, look, at, look at Germany, an advanced civilization, and they fell into, into a despotism, in a dictatorship, a murderous dictatorship, in a span of 10 years after an economic collapse. It can happen here. You think it can't happen here? Now, from that kind of rhetoric and from that kind of treatment, you might assume that Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers are spreading some sort of hateful ideology and are an almost affiliate of Al-Qaeda in the U.S. But if you thought that coverage was unfair, you should see this. It's from Newsweek.com, and they posted an article on the 9th of April 2010 under the headline, Hate. Anti-government extremists are on the rise and on the march. Quote, Stuart Rhodes does not seem like an extremist. He is a graduate of Yale Law School and a former U.S. Army paratrooper and congressional staffer. 
he is not at all secretive. In February, he was sitting at a table at the annual Conservative Political Action Conference at a fancy downtown hotel in Washington, handing out flyers and selling t-shirts for his organization, the Oath Keepers. Rhodes says he has 6,000 dues-paying members, active and retired police and military, who promise never to take orders to disarm U.S. citizens or herd them into concentration camps. Rhodes told a Newsweek reporter, We're not a militia. Oath Keepers do not run around the woods on the weekend shooting weapons or threatening the violent overthrow of the government. Their oath is to uphold the Constitution and defend the American people from dictatorship. But by conjuring up the specter of revolution, or counter-revolution, is Rhodes adding to the threat of real violence? Oath Keepers are a particularly worrisome example of the Patriot Revival, according to Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which monitors hate speech and extremist organizations. Patriot groups, described by the SPLC as outfits that see the federal government as part of a plot to impose one-world government on liberty-loving Americans, are roaring back after years out of the limelight, according to Potok. Notorious in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, the Patriot groups seemed to fade away under the shadow of 9-11, but hard times and the nation's first African-American president seem to have brought about a revival. From 149 groups in 2008 to 512, 127 of the militias, in 2009, according to the SPLC. It is easy to exaggerate the numbers of these groups or the threat they propose, especially if you are an organization like the SPLC dedicated to exposing such things. Extremist outfits have come and gone over the years. With their preening and prancing about in Nazi garb or white robes, skinheads and white supremacists are often more about showing off than committing acts of violence. Law enforcement experts worry more about lone wolves, disturbed loners with military training like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, than they do about loudmouth militia groups. But the feds and local authorities will be watching closely on April 19th when the Oath Keepers mark their first anniversary and join a Second Amendment march on Washington to celebrate the right to bear arms. The Oath Keepers say they are commemorating the first shots of the Revolutionary War fired at Lexington and Concord on April 19th, 1775. But April 19th is also the anniversary of the end of the FBI siege at Waco, Texas in 1993, as well as the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. End quote. If you really don't see through the ridiculous, unbelievable, guilt-by-association tissue of lies and fabrication in that article... And it goes on and on, continuing to associate Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers with Nazis and war criminals and terrorists and white supremacists and skinheads based on absolutely nothing except perhaps for the fact that April 19th was also the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. I don't know what to say. To that end, it was my great pleasure and honor to have Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, on the program last Friday. And for anyone who hasn't yet done so, I would suggest you go to CorbettReport.com and download that interview so you can listen to it in its entirety. But right now, let's take a listen to a short extract from my conversation with Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers, talking about what the Oath Keepers really are and these ridiculous attempts by the media to smear them ahead of a possible false flag event. Well, Mr. Rhodes, as you know, there have been a number of attempts to define your organization and its mission in the establishment media lately, but uh, none of the ones that I've seen lately so far seem to be... uh, particularly honest or fair in their treatment of you. So rather than putting words in your mouth or or simply assuming what your group is all about, why don't we hear from you directly what the Oath Keepers organization is and how you came to found it? Well, the the bottom line is is it's a very simple message. It's simply that those who are currently serving military and police all have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution. And that oath itself comes right out of Article 6 of the Constitution, a requirement that all officers at every level of government, from the federal 
level down to the state level, right down to the local dog catcher, all have an obligation to take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And we want to teach them about this oath and also about the Constitution they swore an oath to defend. Um, the military gets training in, in, in obeying the laws of war and, and, uh, and refusing unlawful orders that violate the laws of war. But they don't get training in the Constitution, at least not sufficient training. And because of the increasing use of the military here domestically, um, such as through Northcom now, you have a Northern Command, and you have, the, I believe it's the 3rd Infantry Division has its combat brigade committed to being used here in, in the United States. With that increase of domestic application of the military, I felt it was necessary to have some very explicit training on the Constitution for the military and for the police so that they would refuse unlawful orders that violate the Constitution uh, to the same degree that they would refuse orders that violated the laws of war. So that's our mission is to teach them about the Constitution and encourage them to refuse unlawful orders that violate the Constitution. So do you think there's always been a need for this type of organization or is there more of a need at this, at this point in history? Well, I, th- I think it would have, something would have helped if, if during the internment of the Japanese Americans, for example, there had been you know, a lot of education on the Constitution and an increased chance of the military uh, disobeying orders to intern American citizens because of, their, because of their skin color. It certainly would have been nice then. It might have also helped during Kent State, for example. So there are, you know, it would have been good to have it in the past, but as I said, post 9-11, there's been uh, a great increase in the claimed authority of the presidency to use the military domestically, and also a great increase in the infrastructure uh, for such use. And I, I said earlier, I pointed to Northcom, this is the first time you've had a command dedicated to the continental United States for the standing military. That's quite a, it's quite a, you know, it's crossing the Rubicon in a big way to contemplate using military power and force here at home. Not talking about the National Guard, we're talking about the standing army. And, and in particular, during the Bush years, it was a claim that the president had uh, almost an, an unlimited power to apply his Article II powers as commander-in-chief here at home, just as though he were on a foreign battlefield. And that was a justification for the NSA spying, claim that he, as a, as a commander-in-chief, he may surveil the battlefield. And the claim was that, is that the United States itself was now part of the battlefield in the war on terror. So, and also the claim, but the most shocking one, of course, was the claim that the president could attain anyone, you or I, or any other American citizen, as an unlawful enemy combatant um, without an indictment, without jury trial, and just detaining in military detention and trying the military tribunal. So the claim really is that he can do anything here at home that he can do on a foreign battlefield. And so this is a, a serious um, upping of the ante and a serious increase in the claim powers of the executive branch that if you apply it here at home, if you actually were to use it, it would be it would it would be tantamount to the the uh, destruction of the Bill of Rights and the setting aside of the Bill of Rights. And so I can't take it for granted that's not going to happen. Right. Well, Mr. Rhodes, as you well know, we've seen an intense demonization campaign in the establishment press over the last few weeks, seeking to paint you and your organization as as domestic terrorists. With a, a Newsweek piece from the beginning, uh, the beginning of this week, bringing up Timothy McVeigh and the Hutari militia and every other cliche of domestic terrorism fear mongering in their attempt to get their readers to associate these things with your organization. What do you think is behind this campaign, and why is the establishment so afraid about a nonviolent group of policemen and servicemen upholding the Constitution? Well, I think I, think it, I can only guess that it must be because they have intentions um, which would require the police and military to obey. They don't like it. They don't want anybody to think for themselves. They don't want police and military to make independent decisions about what orders they will and will not follow. I can't, I can't understand why that would be a problem for them, but um, they're not going to address why because they don't address the actual, what, what our actual mission is. So instead of, instead of targeting what we actually say and arguing against it, instead they, they attempt to, to attack us, ad hominem attacks, and try to associate us with white supremacists, which is really, really ironic and kind of silly because I'm a quarter Mexican and part Apache Indian. It's kind of difficult to... Uh, to turn me into a white supremacist. And so, the, but they, they still try. Like the Newsweek article, it, it mentioned my name for, it talked about me for about two sentences, and then it went into this long uh, five paragraph segment on, uh, you know, on, on neo Nazis and the KKK, and then Timothy McVeigh, of course, and then at the very end, it talked about me again. So it's guilt by association and smear and conflation. This is, this is a standard operating procedure for the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the rest of the media is now picking up on it and using the same tool. 
So this, this, is how, this, is what, this is how you destroy a message, is you don't attack and, and counter honestly what the actual message is. You instead change it into something that's not. You turn it into something that's a distortion of, of the organization actually stands for. And I think, I think their fallback pretty much is that we are um, paranoid, we're, we're spreading baseless conspiracy theories, and, uh, and also attempting to try to make us look like a militia. One of the ways that we can expose and ridicule the work of mockingbirds in the corporate media from smearing organizations like the Oath Keepers is to expose them for what they are, and it's not very hard to do. Indeed, you only have to begin scratching at the surface of an organization like the Southern Poverty Law Center to find some a long list of very nefarious deeds and the fact that it is a suspiciously well-funded organization that claims to not be about profits, but yet has over $170 million at its disposal. And information about that money and where it comes from and how they abuse their nonprofit organization status will be included in the documentation list for today's episode, along with all of the documents and text and videos cited in today's episode. But as bad as all of this is, and all of the myriad ways in which the Patriot Movement and anyone who actually cares about the Constitution is being set up to be a domestic terrorist terrorist in the light of whatever terrorist event they have planned coming down the line, it's even worse. Because not only is all of that going on at the moment, there is also a resurgence in the very familiar loose nuke terrorist threat campaign that has been being hyped since 9-11 itself, and which seemed to reach something of a crescendo in summer of 2007, right before the Minot loose nuke operation seemed to go wrong for the powers that be. And of course, I'll also include links about that so you can get caught up to speed on that. But right now, the loose nuke terror threat threataganda is once again ratcheting up. So unfortunately, we also have to cover that as part of the preparation for false flag that we see taking place in the corporate media. And what better place to start than foxnews.com, which had this article on April 16th, 2010, Osama bin Laden had a Facebook page. And yes, you can go and read about bin Laden's Facebook page and recruiting terrorists on Facebook and Oh, just more of the ridiculous things to do with that figment of the CIA's imagination, Osama bin Laden, the boogeyman living on dialysis in a cave for the last eight years, so we're told. But this is not just coming from Fox News, and it's not just Osama bin Laden on Facebook. It's unfortunately much worse. We're now getting this type of ridiculous rhetoric from none other than the Commander-in-Chief. The central focus of this nuclear summit is the fact that the single biggest threat to U.S. security, both short-term, medium-term, and long-term, would be the possibility of a terrorist organization obtaining a nuclear weapon. This is something that could change the security landscape in this country and around the world for years to come. If there was ever a detonation in New York City or London or Johannesburg, uh, the ramifications economically, politically, uh, and from a security perspective would be devastating. And we know that organizations like Al-Qaeda are in the process of trying to secure uh, nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction, we have no compunction at using them. Uh, unfortunately, we have a situation in which there is a lot of loose nuclear material around the world. And so the central focus goal of this summit is getting the international community on a path in which we are locking down that nuclear material in a very specific time frame with a specific work plan. And one of the things that I'm very pleased about is that countries have embraced this goal and they're coming to this summit, uh, not just talking about general statements All right. of support. You mean like the loose nukes from my knot in the Dakotas being flown down to Louisiana on board those B-52s? You mean missing nukes like that? 
So we hear Obama talking about a massive change that would happen if a nuke went off in New York City. Yeah, the change would be they could then push through their naked body scanners, their secret arrest, their shutdown of the Internet, their takeover of the free press, massive tax increases, launching new wars. Then people won't be talking about the bank stealing 50 trillion globally, 28 plus trillion in the U.S. People won't be talking about the banks moving to take your private pension funds if a nuke goes off. You have to understand when they're talking about Al Qaeda and how Al Qaeda is ruthless and Al Qaeda uh, will use nuclear weapons. They're talking about themselves. They are the terrorist. They play the part of the terrorist and as the saviors. This is the global management geopolitical system. Al-Qaeda was created by our government. It's being used against Iran publicly while they then claim that Al-Qaeda is going to nuke the United States. It is Al-Qaeda. I think it's evident from everything that's swirling around in the media and in the collective consciousness at the moment that people are being prepped to respond appropriately in the wake of the next attack from whatever source of whatever nature, and that is to blame either domestic terrorists or possibly Iran in order to launch a war with that country. And once again, I'm not claiming that I know the day or time of such an event or that anyone who claims to know when this is going to happen or how it's going to happen is either lying or maybe involved in the planning of such an event. But certainly we can see the preparation and the most important thing that any of us can do at the moment is to fight back against this agenda and this media demonization of patriots and liberty-loving Americans and, indeed, people all around the world who care about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To that end, I will be launching my own media operations to expose the false flag terror before it happens here at the Corbett Report and that includes not only this episode, which, of course, I recommend if you enjoy this episode and think that it is important, please spread it to those that you think will be interested in this information. But also, this week, I will be releasing a video tomorrow, Monday the 19th of April, about this false flag hype. And it's going to be one of the most important statements that I've made, at least on an equal level with the message to the environmental movement. So I certainly hope people will get that and will help to spread that message. The corporate media is wagering all of what is left of its dwindling credibility on the idea that there are terrorists within the Tea Party movement and within the Patriot movement and within the militia movement and uh, terrorists from Iran who are lurking around with a loose nuke. And if all of this, all of this hype comes to absolutely nothing, then the corporate media will be utterly exposed as the liars that everyone believes them to be anyway. They are painting themselves into a corner, and it's highly unlikely that they would be doing this unless they had something up their sleeve. It is the duty and the responsibility of you and me and everyone who understands this to get the word out and to stop the false flag preparation from taking hold in the public's consciousness. The louder our voices are in exposing false flag terrorism, the more difficult it becomes for them to use it. So, let's get active. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for episode 129 of The Corbett Report, Kalia and the Stellar Wind.
I tell you, we're living in crazy times. I mean, this does sound like end of the world type stuff. You've got, it sounds like something out of a Greek tragedy. Leave Argos. The Kraken is coming. Release the Kraken. We must leave Argos.